0: Welcome to the Small Business Administration Award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Monday, the 29th. We now know that the Super Bowl will be the Kansas City Chiefs, led by Taylor Swift, versus the 49ers in a who cares situation. But anyway, I hope you had a great weekend. We have a fantastic show. We're cram packed, so we need to go ahead and get started right now. Please welcome Drew. Jones to the show. He is a culture and workplace consultant, author of a new book called The Open Culture Handbook Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation. He's had a very successful multi decade career working on culture and leadership and workplace design. He's worked all over the world with clients in Europe, Asia, Africa, Middle East, Latin America and has published widely in the academic journals and magazines. This is not his first book. I think it's his third fourth. I think, is that right? Correct. fourth, fourth Fourth book. book. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's welcome. Drew, how you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. I appreciate
2: it. I'm doing great. Nice nice. Nice sunny, nice sunny day here in Austin, Texas. So can't
1: complain. Well, you we are <laughs> jealous. Everyone's jealous of Austin. It's perfect. There is what we hear, you know, the, no, n- not in the summer. Well, that's right. It can be awfully sticky and hot. Yeah. All right. So how are we doing culture wise in the workplace right now? You know, culture in America right now is scary as hell. How are we doing macro level <laughs> at the workplace?
2: Well, in terms of workplace, I would say um, hard to imagine getting worse than our sort of popular American culture in terms of the divides and all of that. But but really, this is the motivation behind the book in the first place. Um, You know, as an anthropologist, by training before I got into consulting and then business school teaching and that sort of thing, I was, you know, came out of grad school as as an anthropologist. And so it's always been frustrating for me working with clients how they understand and culture and manage people. And so when you you go back and do a sort of a forensics of really what the state of culture is in business, it's really not very good. I mean, when you look at the data, so I'll I'll bore you with a little bit of statistics up front to sort of set the context, but we've had employee engagement rates around 30% for over 60 years. 70% of corporate change programs fail. On average, according to McKinsey and Accenture, 80 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions don't work, often because of culture, poor culture fit. And large firms spend over $2,000 a year per employee on some form of culture programs, change, transformation, all these buzzwords. And yet, um, roughly 70% of employees say they don't even believe in the cultural goals of their leaders, and 90% don't align their behaviors with the stated culture goals goals of their of of their leaders so we have this sort of impasse where despite all the hype you know we all believe in this notion promoted by Peter Drucker years ago that culture eats strategy for breakfast but in the end business is really really bad at culture so what I try to do in the book is come in as an anthropologist draw on the science and this is really almost a retrospective because I've been Bumbling through client engagements my whole career, and never really spoke up about what I see as the futility of how companies try to force people to change their behavior in this sort of top-down, linear way. And so I started to, you know go back into the evolutionary science of what culture is and how some companies seem to get it really right. And as a result of that, and those are the companies I profile in the book, but as a result of that, they have these two things. They have high levels of employee engagement and high levels of innovation that grow the business. And so they, they're managed in often what a traditional manager would call a radical ways, a lot of self-organization, decentralized decision-making. I'm in a work week for pursuing experiments and in innovation. Uh, but at the end of the day, financially, they're, they're more successful than their peer companies. So there's a financial argument to be made about managing people, as I say in the book, with the grains of our cultural nature, as opposed to against that, which I think, unfortunately, we tend to do uh, on the whole. Is manage people in, in ways that just aren't consistent with, you know, like I say, our cultural nature. And I can talk about what that what that is uh, in a minute. But that's sort of the 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 state of play. It's not very good, I would say.
1: I would agree. All right, so what is open culture? The title of your book is yep. "The Open Culture Handbook." So, what is open culture? Does that mean yeah. we don't keep score at the ping pong and the foosball, and beer is free?
2: <laughs> well, I'm sure there's some of that, but that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is really the the, the in the the companies that uh, some of the companies I focus on in the book are really come out of the open source software movement what i call open organizations there's a great book by Jim Whitehurst the former ceo of red hat software and he grew them up until they were acquired by by ibm but but they're really a prototypical example of a company that um, that is an open organization and that was one of the motivations for the book was really to follow up jim's book on open organization with, with what that might mean culturally. But these are organizations that uh, allow a lot of autonomy and choice amongst individuals and teams. They encourage disagreement when I mean, they call it inclusivity, but that's not in this context so much a DEI notion as it is everybody's voice matters. And it's really premised on peer-to-peer learning, peer-to-peer accountability. And, you know, a lot of those things that we associate with the early Google with uh, you know open source software companies often in the Bay Area, so really it's it's the sharing of information, it's transparency around information. Everybody knows everything. As, and, and really, uh, the, the proxy would be the Silicon Valley startup. And this is where the conversation kind of loops back to conversation of entrepreneurship and small business, because that's where companies often get culture right is in the early days where it's informal there's a clear goal people are sharing information and moving in the same direction it says as companies grow they they follow this trajectory towards formalization and control that shuts down innovation and so uh, yeah so the open source culture you know environment to me really is is where we should be looking for examples in some of the, in, in the world where we work in workplace strategy and design some of these companies have been doing this for years like automatic the parent company of wordpress the 40% of all websites on on the web are, are um, based on on wordpress and it's an open source company open source platform but it and it has an extremely connected culture high learning IQ across the company, and it's been 100% remote its entire existence. They've never had an office. They have employees in 70 countries, uh, I think 2,000 employees at this point, and, and yet they managed to do this. Now people, companies trying to force people back to work through return to office mandates, and can you really build a community Virtually and all these things, and I'm not, and I am an advocate of workplace, so I'm not a 100% remote guy, but companies like Automatic show that it can be done. And so looking at those types of examples, I think is something that, you know, a CEO today who's struggling with office presence and people complying with RTO mandates and all that sort of thing really can look at. So again, that's an open source example of how to adapt to uh, technology, mobility, changing employee expectations, and all the things that really surfaced during the pandemic.
1: So let's refer to that for just a brief second before we get back into the book, Drew, the return to work. Uh, you said you were uh, a return to work guy. What? Where do you think the best solution is? I've seen a lot of people say, no, you're going to be back to work five days a week. UPS just came out and said that they're they're headquarters is about a mile from where I sit right now. And they're going to be back to work five days a week. And I know the culture there, you walk into that building there. It's like a mausoleum. It is the quietest place on earth. Um, it is, yeah. uh, and uh, I don't know why they need to be in the office. They don't speak to each other. Um, what are your thoughts on where the happy medium is? And I think it hugely depends on the industry uh, absolutely, as well. So what are your thoughts overall on this?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think a couple of things. One, there's a model that's been out there since the mid nineties called activity-based working came out of the Netherlands with a company called Veldhoen. and And it, it's a, a choice-based model where they went to a model years ago where employees could work at the office if they wanted. And at home if they wanted and the space was designed with a lot of variety to people to work in different areas, but nobody had a fixed office. So there's, there are models out there like that. And I think at the end of the day, and, you know, honestly, early coworking spaces had this as well. People showed up there every day or not every day, but several days a week, but they didn't have to, they were actually paying to go there. And that's really the industry we come out of is we ran several coworking spaces over a decade ago. And so, really, for, to answer your question in short, is to look at more organic ways of working, like co working, but it starts with choice. I, I think mandates just don't work, particularly post pandemic. So, uh, these mandates just will not work. You can't put the cat back in the bag. So, it's a matter of starting with choice and then going from there.
1: And again, let me have one more diversionary question before we get into the five questions in the book. How do we deal with these damn Gen Z people? Even, I don't know if you remember, I guess it was right around the holidays. Jodie Foster got in big trouble Uh, for some comments that she made that she's having trouble with Gen Z. I got Gen Z employees and kids Yeah, and, uh, talking about, you can't put the cat back in the bag, uh, what are your thoughts on the whole generation?
2: They're the future. We, we have to design. That's
1: so sad.
2: <laughs> oh, I mean, in so many ways, it's an evolutionary process. Uh, yeah, there, I mean, there are things that are annoying about every generation. That's just the way it is. Uh,
1: but I think that. Not our generation, Drew.
2: <laughs> well, are you a boomer or are you. Uh, I think you uh, and
1: I are about the same age. Mid 50s. I'm 60, so I'm a little bit older. But yeah, um,
2: yeah. So I don't know. I I I am very optimistic about them. I, I think that we have to listen to them and design for them. I think this idea that we can somehow or another, um, put it back in the box is just is just wishful thinking. You got to go with demographics, go with the macro cultural changes and all of that. So. I'm excited for it, I, I, but, I, I, but it does run up against that kind of mentality, particularly amongst successful older CEOs and other senior leaders that, that they, they really do want to go back in time. And, and for them, the big compromise, is it going to be two days a week that they'll be on campus or three? But that, that's not an answer. Scheduling is not hybrid work. Hybrid work is is letting employees thrive when and where they thrive best. And, and, and the, the upside is, and this is where, you know, where we get the ears uh, listening of our clients is you can, when you do it well and you don't have a desk or an office per employee and you start with choice, knowing that some percentage of the people will be at home on a given day, you can reduce your footprint by 30 or 40%, you know, and other than people, Real estate is one of the largest costs that companies carry. So there's a real opportunity for efficiency here in terms of managing real estate portfolios. I mean, that's really the opportunity because the industry just assumes that, you know, everybody's going to have a desk and we want to have extra space for growth and all these things. But that that's just really out of step with where we are post-pandemic.
1: Yeah, on a completely tangential note, I'm scared to death of corporate real estate being overbuilt for the next three or four decades we've just got so much unusable or unused space and companies with leases on space that they'll never <coughs> use it's going to be an albatross i think for decades for yeah uh, for the that, economy
2: for that side of commercial real estate absolutely i mean the, a lot of shoes are going to drop and you know that really is a function of You know, cheap money for so long, and developers, and really international investors seeing opportunity in American commercial real estate, and it was just continuous build out. I mean, we have buildings here in Austin now, where, you know, five years ago they would have been leased up, pre-build, and now Facebook just gave the keys back on five floors of the the new tallest building in town and swallowed the their obligation and not even going to move in so yeah that's just one example but you're right it is and this is why you know adaptive reuse is the key we don't need any more builds for for quite a while
1: all right let's get to the book like i keep promising uh let's talk about a couple of the questions so again the open culture handbook five questions to drive engagement (coughs) and innovation so what would some of those questions be
2: well, you know, as an evolutionary anthropologist, I, I focus in on the fact that unlike what we teach in business school and the managers expect, we're very emotional. Humans are an emotional species. So the first one is, why is the company doing this work? You know, the, is there a compelling story? Again, back to the generational difference. People complain that younger employees want to have a purpose and meaning in their work to mean something. But that's actually... Perfectly human to want that. You know, it was a previous generation where you didn't have any input into any of that. You just showed up, you soldiered away in a cubicle, and you went home at five o'clock and had your scotch, and that was the end of the story. But humans are driven by, we're a storytelling species. So companies that have a compelling story, the answer to the question is the why, right? Start with uh, sort of collective motivation. The second is the what. What are people doing? You know, uh, Companies talk a lot about innovation, but in practice, most companies do nothing about it. So employees hear all the corporate speak, but on a daily basis, weekly basis, that that isn't relevant to them. So companies that provide opportunities for employees to experiment and innovate and contribute to innovation, that is the what, have higher levels of engagement because that taps into this human drive to solve problems and to be creative. So that's the what. The how is really the autonomy dimension, you know, in evolution, in other species in evolution, self-organizing systems are the most adaptive, not centralized systems. And so how work gets done. And so in the book, I talk about companies that have no job titles
1: and have. Uh, is that good or bad? How does that in, how does that statistically play out? They, they went, uh, like uh, a good example
2: Morningstar Tomatoes, the largest processor of tomato products in the country. No titles, 100% self organizing teams, but this is the catch. And this really is the key to the, the whole model it's, it's the most intensely accountable organization you will uh, encounter. So, for example, if you can bear with a brief example, when a new person's hired, they choose the team they're going to contribute to. And they write what they call a clue, a colleague letter of understanding to the team. But they write it to a specific individual on the team, stating what value they think they can bring bring to that team over the coming year. And every two months, the recipient of a clue posts that person's progress against their own goals on the Internet for everybody to see, to see how that person's doing. So they're held to the fire of what they've promised the group. And if they don't contribute, the team has the leverage to to, to fire them. So the accountability in these organizations is much higher than a command and control organization where really you're just waiting to survive the annual performance review. So whether it's Automatic or WL Gore or even, gosh, the new Microsoft under Satya Nadella, this peer-to-peer accountability is a powerful Driver, but it's coupled with choice and flexibility about how you organize and get stuff done. And these days, in terms of hybrid, even where you work and all of that. And then the the, the fourth one is really important is is the, who who the leadership is, and that is really comes down to the growth mindset and leaders who you know uh, allow risk taking and experimentation, and um, people are not punished if they fail, and that's really what. Satya Adela has done so beautifully at Microsoft is reverse that paranoia fear-based culture at Microsoft and enabled people to take risks and, and try new things and their financial turnaround has been a direct um, reflection of the cultural turnaround and then the last is the where of work and that is you know and this is where we come in as workplace designers is I, I do think that being co present Builds community, and and so does the um, company have both the spaces and the policies to encourage people to share the space, work together, and collaborate. So those are the five questions. It plays out differently in different companies, and I use different examples to 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 address each of the questions. Uh, But all in all, it's it's really designed to be just a different way of looking at culture. My goal originally was: how do you write a book about culture? Without ever mentioning the word culture, because at the end of the day, it's it's not about abstractions; it's about specific things that companies can do or not do. Most don't do it to enable people to um, to to collaborate and innovate. That's really the gist of uh, from an evolutionary perspective. Because you know, I we'll won't get into all the science, but historically, evolution in an evolutionary sense, uh, culture really is about human evolution and learning and adapting all the technologies from fire to agriculture, to airplanes, antibiotics, to AI, that's culture, sharing information, cumulative knowledge. So how do you unlock that in companies? And and that's what the book is about is designing conditions where people can organically innovate, essentially.
1: Great synopsis. Drew congratulations it looks absolutely fascinating this is one that I will certainly try to spend some time with the open culture handbook how do we find out more follow online i think you have drewjones.co if i'm right how else that's my personal site and
2: then um
1: our, our company site is experient which is
2: just experience with a t instead of a c experient.work that's the company so um And of course, on LinkedIn as well. And just, that's where I am.
1: Fantastic. Drew, thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff. Jim, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We will be right back. We're going to talk about microaggressions. We will find out how bad I am. are back and again thank you so very much for being with us we always appreciate you our great loyal listeners i'm very excited to welcome from london our next guest please welcome buki mosaku he is the founder and ceo of a company called diverse city as in c-i-t-y diverse city think tank it is a work bias and diversity inclusion company. He has worked with thousands of businesses around the world, helping them crack the code for unconscious workplace bias. I am very excited to see if I am doing it. We're going to play a game and find out. He is author of a new book called, I don't understand navigating unconscious bias in the workplace. Buki, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
0: i'm great jim how are you how's life i am very
1: well thank you and thank you for being with us and i'm looking forward to an honest safe place discussion
0: uh, i'm all about that all right I'm so all about that
1: let me go let's jump right into the fire okay i've never heard the name buki mosaku so i would yeah. ask where what kind of where does that name come from I find yes. that is, is that a microaggression right off the bat?
0: <laughs> well, it could be, but <laughs> no. Well, I you think remember it's the, not. The, the
1: the queens, the queens, one of the queens' yeah. ladies got fired. Yeah. For, well, she also touched the uh, the woman's hair. Do you remember the incident that I'm referring to? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Of course, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Lady Hussey. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't you impressed with too, my queen's you know? knowledge? Yeah, I'm very impressed. And you can so ask me where my name is from. You can ask me where I'm from too. But my name uh, um, is, is originally from Nigeria, which is where my which is my heritage. You know, Nigeria. Okay. So that's uh, yeah. It sounds kind of Japanese. Uh, maybe I'm offending some Japanese as well by saying that. But you know, that's what they tell me.
1: Oh, you know, it is very Japanese. I speak Japanese, and uh, it, it could easily be uh, two Japanese words. Uh, so yeah. All right. Great. Well, I don't want to micro offend or macro offend (laughs) either. So I'm excited (laughs) to learn. We talked about playing a game. You're going to list or talk about a situation and I will try to guess whether it's a peeve or a leave as in. Peeve me off as an unacceptable, uh, I don't know what the exact definition of peeve is. Yeah. Uh, how do you define peeve?
0: Well, look, you know, let me explain the game. You know, look, initially, what I, when, whenever I was confronted by unconscious bias, you know, uh, treated badly because of my difference or I sensed that that was happening, right? I decided I needed to decide how I would respond to it. And the first step in deciding how you respond is to determine weighting you'll give to the, the 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 infraction or the offense that you felt. So I would always say, is this a piece? which means I need to sit down and have a conversation with the person about what, what they've said to me, or is this a leave which which is maybe like a microaggression. I just need to respond back in kind. So peas is okay we need to really have a conversation here right and leave is let me just bat it away with a light comment back, uh, light comment to deal with it and move on and enjoy my lunch so yeah so hopefully that explains uh uh what pee or leave is and so i can Isn't tell you th- i can
1: a third category of neither it's not it's nothing it's just
0: a neutral comment Jim, you're so awesome. It's almost like you've been on the workshop, right? That's so true. There's a a middle category, which is 50-50 or neither or neutral. Yeah.
1: Right, because what I feel like when I ask you, Buki, that's an interesting name. Where is that from? I feel like there's absolutely no undertone. There's no, I, I you know, I don't. I'm a world traveler, you know, to me, that's just a nice <laughs> way of being interested in you.
0: Yeah, so I would say, so let me ask you then, peeve or leave, what would you say to that?
1: To what, what, what situation?
0: So you said, that you're asking me where I, my name is from, would, you know, would you see that as a leave thing? I need to sit down and have a conversation with you about your bias, or, your, or, or would you say that as a leave? Uh, this isn't anything serious, I'll just let it go.
1: Yeah, this is not serious. Uh it, it, you know, if the person's intent is to get to know me and you know, it depends on the follow up, you know, I guess. The follow up could be yeah. well, Oh, Nigeria. So you're a uh a prince and a, a crypto prince and you have a deal for me. Now it's a microaggression.
0: That's a microaggression, right? But I'd still leave that. I would just deal with it. I would just deal with it in a very light way and move on and enjoy my lunch. Because that's not going to my career.
1: I don't get bothered when people make fun of me in my name. You know, that's just... It's almost like they're showing that they at least like me enough to tease me. You know, I'm... I am
0: i know that it's But I mean, I think... yeah, I think it's an individual thing, and different people deal with it in different ways. But by using your internal GPS, you can say, right now, was that a peeve comment or a leave comment? If it's a leave comment, a person says, "Oh, you a prince? You're trying to uh, crook me of like ten thousand um, dollars." You can you 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 can just say, "No, I'm yeah 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 you know no, I'm not." and say something something similar to them, you know, um, you know. I'm trying to think of a stereotype about. Of an American, but I can't at the moment. <laughs> I'd probably say something simple, move on, and enjoy my lunch. Or i just make a joke of it and move on.
1: All right, let's play a game, all right? You give me a situation. I'll leave or peeve, and then you can keep score, and we'll see who wins, okay?
0: Okay, cool. All right, give right, okay. me a situation. So, uh, all right. Uh, your all are so arrogant and uptight. You Americans, peeve or leave?
1: Agree and ha- shake your hand.
0: <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but uh, <laughs> uh, But let's so, change okay, it to
1: nationality. Let's say edit you French are so uh, arrogant.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, peeve or leave. So I, they might see that as a peep. I think. They, know, they, yeah, they I think might that, see that, that is as rude. A, that's yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Right yeah okay so they might see that as a peeve. so then if it's a peeve, that's a sit down conversation which i show people how to have the sit down conversation but like you could say you could be a woman right or well, i could be a woman and you could say to me and i could um be drawing your attention to something which is of uh, which is really important in an assertive way and then you could say to me you're so hysterical would that be peeve or leave
1: Ooh, that's a great one uh is the woman acting hysterical or just, uh, so far it doesn't sound well, uh, so far. It sounds like a peeve so far. It sounds like he's being misogynist.
0: Exactly. Well, I think as it sounds is how you should respond. So you would see that as a peeve. So that's a sit down conversation, right? Yeah. Another All right, one, let's, let's jump t- out of the game so really on.
1: fast, Buki, and describe how to have that sit down conversation. So okay. someone offends me. And mm. I do or, or Let's have it different ways I've offended you I have offended you Please walk right. me okay, through me- the conversation
0: Okay so like There are two forms of bias right The first is what I call simple bias And the second is what I call complex bias Now simple bias are what are traditionally known as Microaggressions Like subtle slights comments towards somebody Right unconscious or conscious Right so Back in the day when I started my consulting practice, you know, sometimes I would speak, you know, because I'm a speaker as well. And people would say to me in the early stages, Bookie, you speak so well. And I would see it as a backhanded compliment. So my internal dialogue would be, oh, yeah, you're saying that just because it's like a backhanded compliment. Because I'm a black guy, you're surprised that I'm eloquent. And that was what was in my mind. Right. But then when I leave the office, I think, well, hang on. Maybe they just thought I spoke well. What's the matter with that?
1: If you're a speaker, so it's a confu- saying you do your job good.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I was thinking, is that my actual, Is that was that actual microaggression to me or was it a reverse microaggression from me to them? So I thought, I had this kind of confusion and I didn't understand, which is part of the reason I came up with my book, which is called I Don't Understand. So I thought, right, next time somebody says I speak well or I'm eloquent, I'm going to respond back. And this is the process that I use to respond back. So I categorize that as a leave. So this is how you deal with a leave um, comment or behavior towards you, right? So this is how you deal with a microaggression. Three steps. Step one, give the person the benefit of the doubt. Regardless of what you may eat, if it might sound like they did it on purpose or they're being offensive, just give them the benefit of the doubt, right? What does that look like when a person says you speak so well? Well, it means I say thank you. Now, the next step is reconditioning, right? Light, light reconditioning. If I think there's something there, right, unconscious bias that they're not aware of, I might then say, you sound surprised, right? So uh, the person says you speak so well, I say thank you. You sound surprised. And then the third step is move on and enjoy your lunch. Right? And the reason why I say enjoy your lunch is because this used to always happen to me in the morning. And it would end up ruining my lunch. So I thought, I need mean, this can't go on because lunch is way too good to be ruined. Don't you think, Jim? I'm so not
1: going to ruin my lunch, lunch over this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so I thought I had to come up with a way of dealing with it. So that's it. So the way to deal with microaggressions is give the person the benefit of the doubt, light reconditioning, which allows for your misinterpretation, and then move on and enjoy your lunch. Because the problem with microaggressions, right, is not the one comment. It's the accumulation of comments which creates the dis-ease and the um, tension so, and, and all the, the negative feelings. So if you can deal with it, you can stop it in its tracks, you can move on, and your lunch will always be good. So that's how you deal with microaggressions. Is that okay? So that's how to deal with the leave type comment. Right. Then the, so the next comment is the pee, you know, the pee, what we categorize as the peeved. And this is the kind of stuff when this is the kind of stuff which causes underrepresentation that you see in large organizations throughout the, the West, in the States, in the UK, you know, certain minorities just don't get senior roles or high profile roles. Right. And in many cases, they sense it's because of their difference. Right. So let's say, for example, I wasn't put on a shortlist and I think you know, it's because of my difference, maybe the way I look, maybe my socioeconomic background, maybe because I'm disabled, maybe because of my gender or my gender identity, right? I need to call it out, but I need to call, how do I call that out without getting the other person upset? So what I came up with is with a four-step model for dealing with that, and this is what we call our IDU model. This is complex bias. This is how you deal with complex bias, the stuff in between that's hard to put your finger on, right? There are four steps. Step one is leave your baggage at the door. Leave your baggage at the door. This is baggage that you have every right to be carrying based on what you see around you, based on the representation that you see around you. Maybe in your organization you don't see any women, and you're a woman, in senior roles. Or maybe you're a person of color, black person, minority ethnic Right? and you don't see any minority ethnics in senior roles, and you haven't been shortlisted for a job, and you assume, you think to yourself, well, that's down to because of my, my, my ethnicity or my gender or my sexual orientation. So, right, what I'm saying is that you have to drop that baggage, the baggage that you have every right to be carrying, arguably, but you need to drop it. Now, the question is, why do you need to drop it? So let me ask you, Jim, why do you think I'm suggesting that you need to drop that baggage, even if you have right to, to be suspicious?
1: Well, as you said, I think you have to give the person the benefit of the doubt at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh if you come into this situation with the baggage, I am mm-hmm. going to be offended. I haven't done anything to you yet. It feels like I've been convicted for society's <laughs> problems. <Ew. laughs> right. And so yeah. it's only fair. If you want me to be fair yeah and and non-racist then you need to be fair yeah. and non-racist too and assume that I'm not part of the problem until you see that I am part of the problem
0: and then that Exactly uh,
1: So anyway Along leave baggage it. at the door yeah. number
0: 1 I so got you, it Leave no, step one leave the baggage at the door So for the exact reasons that you said but the, the other mean reason in our process is the only way that you can get to step 2 Right And actually, step two, because that begs the question, what is step two? Step two is actually give the person the benefit of the doubt. So step one is set your mindset, right? Leave the baggage at the door, right? Even if you think you're right to have it, leave it at the door, which enables you then to move to step two, which is, as you correctly said, give the person the benefit of the doubt, right? Give them the benefit of the doubt, regardless of how certain you are of bias towards you. Give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, But here's the rub. Here's the rub, Jim. Give him the benefit of the doubt, but call it out anyway. Call out the sensed bias anyway. So the question then becomes, and people always ask me this in workshops when we're doing them, how do you give a person the benefit of the doubt but call them out at the same time? Well, the way to give a person the benefit of the doubt but call out bias at the same time is to simply say these three powerful words. I don't understand. I don't understand. Just tell them you don't understand, it's the purest, it's the most unscathed place you can come from.
1: Give right? me an example, and guess what? Set up a situation. I don't get it,
0: right? So, I don't okay, so let's say, yeah, so let's, <laughs> so let's say you didn't shortlist me for a role, right? And I'm sensing bias, I'm sensing unconscious bias that you didn't shortlist me because of where I'm from, or because of where I, what I look like, or because of my gender right? Instead of saying, yeah, you didn't, sit, you didn't shortlist me because of the way I look or because of my, my background. Instead of saying that, drop your baggage, right? And then give the person the benefit of the doubt. And I might just say, I, know I would ask an IDU type question, right? So you could, you could just say, look, just for, my, uh, just for my own understanding, just for my own development, um, what was the criteria for the shortlist? And then you're going to respond. Why are you going to respond? Because I'm invoking your natural instinct to give direction by asking you an I don't understand type question. In other case, in other words, you'll respond to that. You'll tell me what the criteria is. And I'll say to you, well, you know, uh, let's say you said the criteria is A, B, and C. And I'll say, okay, but you know what? I have A, B, and C, so I still don't understand. Could you just explain a bit further? And now we're into a conversation about bias without getting the other person upset, getting their back up, uh, but also illuminating what the bias is. And in the course of that discussion, one of two things will happen, right? Either the bias towards me will call itself out, or my reverse bias, my misinterpretation of your decision and your behavior as driven by unconscious bias will call itself out. Right. And then what we can do is move um, to step four, which is to collaboratively agree next steps. So let me just go through those steps again, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Step one. Right. Is to um, uh, set your mindset. Right. That is leave your baggage at the door. Step two. Right. Is to give it is to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but call them out anyway. How do you call them out? You you use those three powerful words. I don't understand. You turn that statement into a question. I don't understand. When you do that, it invokes, it ignites their natural instinct to give direction. That is, they'll say, "Well, what don't you understand?" Or they'll say, "Let me explain and elaborate." And now you're into an otherwise sticky conversation about bias, which you wouldn't have been able to, and as long uh, get into otherwise. And as long as you stick with that, I don't understand. tact questioning, which we call developmental inquiry. As long as you stick with that type of questioning, what's going to happen is that the bias will call itself out, either their bias towards you or your bias towards them. And then once you've, that's been identified on earth, you can collaboratively agree next steps, which is the fourth step. How did that sound, Jim?
1: I love it. I love it. And, uh, you know, it's uh, a wonderful way to let someone unmask themselves and to expose what they were thinking i don't understand mm. please take it to the next tell me the next sentence you were thinking you know what was what was the yeah. next sentence you were thinking there buddy and it said, you know it exposes uh you know it really does invite them to expose their inner thoughts mm. And so, yeah,
0: and it could be the, and they could be biased towards you, but you could be biased towards sometimes, you know, that's the problem. You know, one of the issues that we have is that, you know, there are two forms of bias is what I describe as directional bias that's towards you because of your race and ethnicity, gender, age, sexual orientation, uh, thinking pattern that's towards you. But there's also reverse bias, where people misinterpret behaviors and decisions as driven by unconscious bias. And in that m- moment, they become the perpetrator, and the traditional perpetrator becomes the victim. But nobody ever wants to talk about that other side of it, right? They see it as a one-way street, but actually, workplace bias is a two-way street. In the moment, it's a two-way street. I can be biased, you can be biased towards me, but I can be biased towards you. Um, in the moment And once we accept the multi-directional Nature of workplace bias We can actually navigate it But if you can't, you can't navigate it
1: Very well said Alright, can you give us another situation And play a little more peeve or leave?
0: Yeah, let's do some more peeve or leave So the person said I don't know, so the, look A lot of African American women have told me this Right, Sometimes they're in a situation in, in predominantly white male environments and uh people might say this is not no no I'm not saying every male environment is right, it's just an example. Person says to you, you know, oh, can I touch your hair? Or your hair looks exotic. Can I touch your hair? <laughs> is that a peeve or leave?
1: Uh that's uh I mean that's just flat out wrong. So those <laughs> that's unacceptable. <laughs>
0: All right, so that's a that's a that's a peeve, right? Yes. that's a peeve. Yeah. So we then need to have an IDU type conversation. Yes. Person says to you, all right. Person says to
1: you, um. Oh, well, what about let's switch it know. up, Booky. Let me switch it up. I'm a largely right. bald guy. I still have some on the top, but not much. What if someone says they want right. to rub my bald head for good luck?
0: <laughs> so yeah, I yeah. So look, you know what I would say. Because I've got very short hair, right? That would be a leave for me. I would say only if I can rummage my hands in your hair first, and then I'd move on and enjoy my lunch. So for me, that would be a leave. What would you? What would you make it? A peeve or a leave?
1: Uh, I'm just crying. I'm just realizing. I will need a minute. I'm just the situation. Just thinking about the situation makes makes me really emotional. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, if that bothers you, you know, yeah. I've been divorced, Buki. I've had lawyers being paid $600 an hour to be, you know, telling me what a schmuck I am. So, you know, <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> you, you can live with a bold remark, right? That's right. And <laughs> I'm an
1: entrepreneur too. So I live in the world that you're, you know, if you get 96 no's, you can still get the yes. Yeah. Tomorrow. You know, exactly. So, exactly. Uh, with uh, thick skin. Yes, I I also dated, you know, and
0: uh so And I have a pretty yeah. wife what now I, because of it. Oh well there you go. There you go. What if a person said where are you from? Let's say you weren't um I don't know, you weren't uh you know, let's say the person says where are you from? What you know, how how you know, the, the queen example. People leave.
1: Uh I think that's showing interest in where a person is from and uh you know, the best thing that can happen is, you know, you're from Nigeria, my best friend is from Nigeria, you know. Um uh, yes. and now you and I have a bond. Yeah. And so I exactly. I think it's it's very similar to asking, Do you have a family? Are you married? Do you have kids? I'm just trying to get to know you, buddy. What do you do on Saturday?
0: Exactly. I'm with you. I'm with you. But some people, that's exclusionary. What if a person said to you, yeah, but where are you? Let's say I'm from New York. And the person says, yeah, but where are you really from? Peeve or leave?
1: Well, I mean, that's what the Queen's lady did. The lady said, I'm from London or, you know, England. I'm from Yorkshire. Yeah. and. Exactly. The lady Press. No, 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 no. Where are you really, really from? And that's where yeah. she went off the yeah. rails. And so Exactly. Uh I think that she did make a mistake. Let me ask you the really well, the I'm- most important question, Buki. I mean let's get down, let's cut through all of the BS and let me ask you the single most important question. Are you team right. Kate or Team Megan?
0: Well, I, I'm on neither of their teams to be honest, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm not, you know, but I'm on neither of their teams, but I'm not a massive fan of Megan. I got to say, you know, I am mean? not a massive fan of Megan. Really? I'm not a massive fan, but I'm not on either of their teams. I'm not a hater of either of them though, but I'm I'm just not a massive fan of Megan. Yeah. That's a very polite well, we way to say something. Yeah, which 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 team are you on?
1: <laughs> I am very much team Kate. I think that Megan has uh exemplified horrific behavior and uh I I'm disgusted by some of her behavior. So um
0: yes so, you know, I gave an interview on that on my site. A, you know, I think you'll find it really interesting and maybe your listeners, you know, but I gave an interview on that. Well, is it yeah, racist yeah. Why
1: do you think- to dislike Megan?
0: No, why? Of course it's not. Well, as long as you don't, as long as you don't like, you dis, you dislike her because you just dislike her, not because of her, her race. Then I mean, it would be racist if it was just because of her race, you know, but an ethnicity. But I mean, if you if you dislike her, you dislike her, you know.
1: I dislike her because I, you know, I didn't, her daddy didn't walk her down the aisle. That was just too weird to me. That whole situation I, I, was thank just too you. weird.
0: I don't even think that was, But what was more weird to me, apart from the dad not walking her down the aisle, apart from that because he was ill or something, I don't know. But the thing what was more weird to me was that the mother just came on her own, not one friend. And what I thought was beautiful was that the now king, but then Prince Charles, you know, said, "Don't worry, I got your back. Right. You're one of walk us." Walk her down the aisle. Yes. I'm walking you. Yeah, I will walk you down, and that's just nice. Forget about royalty. That's just nice. So then how can you now go and bite the hand that feeds you, inverted commas, and start saying that the guy's racist? I mean, that's ridiculous. So I need them to explain it to me. That's why I say I'm less of a fan of of, of Megan. But if she explained it to me, I'll try and understand. But, you know, where I'm sitting now, I just don't get that, amongst a whole load of other things as well.
1: All right, here is a serious question, though. This just came to mind. The whole DEI movement took a hit in the United States right before the holidays, and then I guess after the holidays with the Harvard, MIT situation, with the uh, inability Uh, to condemn. uh, Oh, yeah, the Palestine and all of
0: that. Yes, Mm. yes. So
1: my question is, did DEI take a hit? I've read a lot of articles that said, yes, wow, DEI was really damaged by all of this. Uh, As an outsider, what do you think happened? Where do you think America is right now as an outsider?
0: Well, I think, look, you know, I um, I think two things. First of all, on that in particular, I think we need to just, you know, just take a chill pill. And stop saying that you know all these big universities are the are the benchmark. Well, for anything, I mean, they are important, right? but we don't, we shouldn't couch DEI uh, under in, in terms of Harvard and MIT. You know, as influential as they are, you know, we shouldn't do that. That's ridiculous. That's the first thing. Now, and 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 just on top of that, I do think. You know, in terms of condemning hate speech, that's easy to do, and it should be done. And so, that's my stand on that. Uh, I'm not making any political kind of comment here. I'm just saying, you know, you can't start hating. You can't start hating or persecuting people, and then complaining about it happening to others because two wrongs don't make a right. So, I I didn't look. Yeah, so I disagree with. So, I with with the annoyance around that. Um. The other problem, though, in America and the rest of the world is that everybody, all these organizations and, and, and business schools have a lifelong subscription to what I describe as the guilty perpetrator versus hapless victim model. That is, there are these people by default, they are the guilty perpetrator, and there are these people uh, by default are the hapless victim. And the only way that the hapless victim's life can get better is if the traditional guilty perpetrator changes. And the problem with that model is that it leads to an eradication mindset where you're trying to eradicate bias. And bias is inevitable and you can't eradicate it. So the the problem with that is that um, it creates what I describe as a diversity and exclusion nightmare, right? Because it... It, it, demon, it kind of demeans one set of people, which are these uh, minorities, as, as hapless victims, and it demeans, <laughs> uh, demonizes, sorry, um, a majority, saying that they are the be-all and end-all reason for inequality, and the only way it can change is if they change. When actually that's an oversimplistic view of the problem, and in the moment, bias is fluid, as we've been seeing through our exercises that we've been doing. Spooky. Does that make sense? It does. Uh,
1: great conversation. Thank you so much for uh, helping us. How do we find out more? Follow online. Get a copy of the book. It is five-star rated on that Amazon place. Congratulations. How do we find out more? Thank you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, look, you know, you can go to my site, which is B u k i m o s a k u B-U-K-I-M-O-S-A-K-U.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, which is B-U-K-I-M-O-S-A-K-U, Buki Masaku. And, of course, you can get my book on all the retail outlets, Barnes & Nobles, Waterstones, you name it, Amazon. It's on there. Um, and you can contact me directly on info at BukiMasaku.com. And I'm on all the social media.
1: Fantastic. Bookie, thank you so much for a great interview. I appreciate you being with us.
0: It's been a oh, total pleasure, Jim. Well, thank you.
1: We're out of time, but you know what we do. That's right. We come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care and go make a million dollars. Bye now. <laughs> Bye.